This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today, my guest is a self-made filmmaker and founder of the Commercial Directing Film School, author of the book Commercial Directing Voodoo, and host of Respect the Process podcast. He has directed four films, three documentaries, and over 1,300 commercials. Coming up is my delicious dialogue with director and storyboard storyteller, Jordan Brady. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity, la 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 la, la 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 la. Wow, thank you for that intro, that I am humbled and yet uh, eating it up. And I love the song, and the best line in the theme song is, the curse of creativity. I love that line because it's like you don't have a choice but to make stuff, whether it's jokes or films or plays or magic tricks. It's a curse. It really is. I love the term self-made filmmaker because you dove in from my recollection from being a stand-up comic and doing some writing to determining yourself that I'm going to do some directing. Yes, sir. Self-taught, read some books, had a lot of help and had help on set from other directors. When I was a stand-up and a host on TV shows, I would say, what are you doing? How are you doing that? Why are you putting the camera here? I had a lot of great people help me and a lot of assholes that refused to help. They would guard mm. that knowledge. And I think that informed me just as much as the people that were cool. Yeah, it sounds like the Ron Howard Film School because even when he was as little as Opie, I think he was asking, what are you guys doing over there? And he's become a super director. Yeah. So tell me about the first project, the angst of directing your very first thing. It was comedy driven, right? Yes. I was doing stand-up comedy on the road like you back in the heyday when there were clubs and when you could swing a cat and get booked. That was a great part of your act, by the way, the cat swinging part. I always loved that. Oh, everyone loved the cat swinging <laughs> It was. I actually did. I think you're joking, but I did a bit about flying rat's ass. Like whoever said, let's, I wouldn't give a flying rat's ass as if somebody actually <laughs> cut off the anus of a rodent and swung it over their head and threw it. But that's another day. I bought this video camera. It was one of the first camcorders when the camera and the recorder were melded together. I took it on the road. I remember shooting with Brian Regan. He was the middle act. I was the MC. And I was learning to edit with a couple of tape decks, which is a, a common story for people of our vintage. And then I got tapped as a host a lot of times for television. I had a couple of game shows, a, another pilot, hosted a variety show. You know, none of them went. One of them went for a while, and the rest of them were crazy. And I would go, like, for Comedy Central when I was on the road. I said, hey, give me a box of tapes. I'll shoot some promos. Mm. 
So if I was at the Houston Laugh Stop, which you'll have to carbon date that reference, right? Well, there's nothing to do in the day. I mean, you can get high and watch cartoons, which I did my share of. But you got to do something in the day. And, you know, I guess the more successful comedians wrote jokes. But I would go out and shoot and edit and learn. And I went to Daytona Beach for Bike Week that coincided with MTV's spring break. And I was shooting Man on the Street. I guess Man on the Street was my entree because you don't need a lot of filmmaking prowess. And I was the talent. Right. Explain that term, though, to the listener. And it goes back to stuff that Steve Allen did and all sorts of other folks. Man on the Street, Charles Kuralt in the probably 60s and 70s, to David Letterman leaving his office and going to the bakery across the street. Man on the Street is just your roving reporter. Billy on the Street would be the, uh, the modern version, Billy Eichner. But asking questions of people, stopping and pay, finding some found subject matter. And the key that I learned very quickly, Pat, was ringers. Have ringers, have, you know, patsies, confederates, whatever you want to call them, and have some props waiting at the corner store. And I've carried that through in documentary work. You know, I'm, I want more to be a storyteller than a lucky person to find good shit. You were lucky at that point with the man on the street that you were beginning to understand the medium of using the camera as a storytelling device. Because many people who picked up a camcorder and were shooting their vacation, they were just putting it in front of their eye and it was almost unwatchable when you would look at it because they didn't really realize they weren't using the camera in its most effective way. They were sort of peering out from their point of view. And then, then it was seasickness to watch somebody's home videos. So that's interesting though that you got, you kind of eased into it by developing your talent at the same time as the technology was developing for like homemade and domestic use. Absolutely. I wish YouTube were around when I was starting to learn because it was your own distribution channel. And I also, Pat, had stand-up comedians as friends that I could say, hey, let's uh, shoot your bit and bring it to life. Like, I don't know how many times I've seen the idea regurgitated on television, cable network streaming. Hey, let's take a comedian's bit. Now they animate it a lot, Yeah, which I don't think it needs it. I think it actually adulterates the art form. And I certainly am guilty, too. Like, if you're going to do your golf bit, I don't need to show you golfing. Right. It right. doesn't add to the comedy. If anything, it takes away the nuance of the performer. But you bring up something really interesting because there's sort of a buy-in among the people who are interested in this business that making stuff is just, what are we going to do this afternoon? At that time... I had a roommate, Joel Madison, talented, funny guy. We would just say, hey, I got an old tuxedo. Why don't you put that on? We'll make you a kitchen magician that was famous on the radio. Like, we would just make some crazy thing up. And then we would start to shoot, and we would edit in the camera. We would just go, stop. But then we'd run into needing a character. So we'd go down the hall and knock on a apartment door, and Terry Hatcher lived there and was on the love boat. And we'd go, hey, can you put on a swimsuit and jump out of a refrigerator? The fact that any of that happened is just because everybody's kind of crazy willing to start making stuff. I remember the two big breaks. I had done this MTV show and I hosted it as a comedian. And that's where I was watching the multi-camera world. And I thought I liked that, but that was a different beast, right? So I'm doing the promo things and I get offered to be 
the second banana host on a kid's show at NBC. It was called Name Your Adventure with Mario Lopez. This is in the Save by the Bell era in the early 90s. So Mario Lopez is a big deal at that point. He's such a big deal that when the adventure calls for shark diving or something with fire and knives, he's not insured. But the comedian from Cable is. Okay, okay. And that's basically how I got the job. I was the second fiddle that was disposable. Right, that's funny. So funny. And I hope that this inspires the listeners to just take the gauntlet, right? Grab the gauntlet by the balls or whatever the saying is. I go and I meet the executive producers, friends with them to this day 30-some years later. It's a husband and wife at the time. They hire me to host, and I take the job, and I'm humbled and loving it. Saturday morning reality show which was more man-on-the-street type adventures. Mm -hmm. Kids would write letters about what they wanted to do. We would take them on the adventure. So I leave, and I go home, and I think about it, and I go, you know, they were really cool. I'm going to ask them if I can direct this show. Having done no network anything, I go back an hour later. I say, hey, can I see Scott and Carrie? And they go, uh, were you just here? I go, yeah, I come in. They go, what are you doing back? And I said, look. The, and I go, the most cliched phrase in Hollywood. What I really want to do is direct. Like, happy to host a show, can't wait to host a show. And they laughed, and I brought a tape from spring break, and I was bungee jumping, and I talked to bikers, and I had promos. I had, like, a little VHS stuff. And they, they laughed, and they said, I'll tell you what, I don't need directors. That's what the, the producer, Scott, said. He goes, I need producers. So if you produce six segments, you can direct one at the end of the season. And I said, yes, please, thank you, before he could finish the sentence. Yeah, that is so great. You get sort of double the pleasure there. You get to see it all on its feet and be a part of producing it and understand the show even better by the time you're ready to direct that one. Well, looking back, yes, revisionist history being what it is. At the time, I inside going, I don't know how to produce. I hate uh, I want someone to do that, but I learned. I went in the office every day. I made phone calls. I pulled letters that kids had written. And by the end of three years on the show, I ended up directing more than I produced. And some I would do both. Some I produced for other directors. Some I directed myself. Someone else produced. So then that, that preceded your first feature is what you're saying. Correct. And if you're tracking this, young filmmakers, the narrative shortcut was a mockumentary. And I had management at the time who said, you know, you just got to write something, Jordan. You really have to write it. That's what you want to do as a feature. So I pitched and I wrote and uh, I did a, a f my first feature-length film was a mock documentary, basically a country spinal tap called Dill Scallion. Wayne Fetterman is the bassist. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And there were some other uh, names in there that have now really grown. Who are the other folks that were in it? David Koechner, you've seen in every Will Ferrell movie as, you know, Champ, the sports guy. Yeah. Uh, Billy Burke went on. To, he's on every show that has a fireman or a dinosaur. He's a great <laughs> right. guy. Friends to this day. Young listeners would know. Uh, does the audience know Tucker? Well, they've heard his name, and they often hear it at the end. 
Tucker is my son, and he may know this name. So t- tell us who it is. Billy Burke was the star in the dad in Twilight, the vampire franchise. He was Kristen Stewart's father. So he went on, and Laura, Lauren Graham went on to be Gilmore Girls. Paul Feig was a drummer for one shot. Yeah. And for the, for the audience, Paul Feig is the director of Bridesmaids and so many other things, a Ghostbusters remake. And he was another guy that as a comic, he had started on his own directing path with a couple of small films of his own. And it was really intriguing to be a fellow comic and go, what's that, what's that guy doing over there? Initially, you think, oh, this person's making a big mistake giving up stand-up. And then you look at it again and you go, wow, this is really taking off. Maybe I'm the lazy guy. I mean, I know you mean that not personally because I put you in that category with the first one I remember is Bunk Bed Brothers. And then you did the Wonder Bread years because I remember like, what's this guy doing putting on a show? Wow, that seems like a lot of work, but he's got total control. And it's, I think it's a bigger palette. And I'm, I'm a huge stand-up fan. And I will take advertising clients you know, from directing commercials. I'll take them to comedy shows. We saw Rory Scovel at Largo, and I would take them to see Dana Gould at the UCB. And Dana came up to me before a show one time. He goes, what are you, what are you doing? I go, well, I brought my clients to see you. You're one of my favorites. He goes, but how do you sit here in the audience? You're cured. <laughs> well, Dana's a very funny guy. He has been on this podcast, and he continues to do very – uh, hilarious and inventive things. And his business of being Dr. Zayas and Planet of the Apes interviewing people is oh, hilarious. That. Just the fact that he goes through the trouble to put the makeup on and become the character is a commitment beyond anything I could imagine. I work with these guys that do a lot of GM commercials and Toyota commercials. And two, two of my dear friends in the ad industry, and he was, I knew Dana did it live. Dr. Zayas is from the original Chuck Heston, Planet of the Apes. He's the orangutan-ish guy. And uh, I wanted to do a Cadillac commercial with Dr. Zayas and play it straight. You know, just, it's, you know, it's, it's new and improved Cadillac, but you think of that swinging 70s Cadillac that, was, that Dana does Dr. Zayas as. And he was launching the show, and he said, I have this thing coming up. We backed off. Because oh. he had he had the, the YouTube show. Well, let's because you've mentioned a few references back to clients and commercials, I want to give the audience a stronger context because we were reintroduced. So many years had passed, and I did go up to Dallas when you were doing one of your uh, boot camps for commercial directors. One of the first, second or third one I'd ever done. Well, here was interesting. I had directed a handful of commercials and really – initially several parodies and some self-made things just for satire to send into places like Saturday Night Live or, or whatever. And then I started to get some actual clients and some directing that was, you know, how it came about was that production companies liked my sense of humor, liked what I had to offer creatively to content. And they felt like I could c- communicate better to the actors and make a better event. And they really knew all of the details about lens length and all of that. And I, I was upfront with them. I go, listen, I'd, be, I'd love to direct. I just got to be honest. If you think that I'm going to pull these guys together and 
tell you the technical stuff, you're out of your minds. You know what I mean? And they go, no, no, we know you're not going to do that. I go, who is going to do that? Because I don't mind as long as I know there's somebody tandem jumping with me and they're going to pull the chute so that I don't mess this thing up. And they did. They were very, very protective of the technical side, which alleviated a lot of tension for me because it was intimidating to be in charge of the storytelling and the humor, which I was very comfortable with, and then to think about all of the other parts. But my uh, first AD was the editor. So the editor is saying, yes, that'll tie in for the spot. Yes, you've got your coverage there, right? I, I mean, it was a real luxury to have that person on my first couple of spots. So I, I guess you know so much about this, and I don't want to keep people from going to your boot camp or reading your book or doing all that. I actually want to amplify all of that today. But when you did those first ones and I went, I thought this is an extraordinary piece of generosity and that nobody's going to take the jobs from you. That, that occurred to me right away. Your experience and all of that was happening, but you know, it was a intensive in a couple of days way to hear just all of the little nuances of where things can go wrong from not having fresh breath to not being prepared to how to do the pitch, <laughs> being early, not eating lunch, the pattern of what you were doing. Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick was a lot. That kept coming up. But it is so critical in the business because there's a lot of insecure people that we watch going along that are overbearing and that are squelching people's creativity, that aren't collaborative or allowing people to explore some part of the scene. And what ends up happening is their insecurity ends up ruining the experience versus the idea of somebody who has control, can communicate to their director of photography and all that, and then let them shine, let them do amazing things. I'd like from your seat as a commercial director, I want you to take us through just the beginning of the job when you're awarded a job. I just think most people have no idea how a commercial director gets a job. Something you just said was basically delegate to elevate. And when I started, I too didn't know a lot about cameras and lenses. And, and this was back you shot film and you couldn't just let it roll. And I had a lot of people help me. A lot of people go, hey, I'll take care of the image. You, know, you tell me what you like, anything. It's a confidence game. Not to be arrogant or ego is very dangerous, so you want to balance that with humility, but go to your DP and explain what you want to her, and she gets off on knowing the lenses that are going to make it great and how to light it. And that's the same with, I'm sure you had a, a set designer help you with the Bunk Bed Brothers. Someone brought their ideas, and the, the, it's almost like the less hands-on, the more people bring their special sauce to the party. Yeah, in fact, I just want to piggyback on that for a moment because one thing I learned when I didn't have a lot of money was don't pick the top dog. Don't pick the unreachable, expensive person. Pick the underdog who's great, who wants to showcase their own talent. I got set designers and sound designers and costume of people who said, let me have this and I'm going to make you proud. And I would go, hey, man, show off all you want. The water level goes up for all of us here. And so I kept my eye on people that were, were breaking or coming from some other place because it was a win-win. Yeah, they'll go to the mat for you if it's a wonderful opportunity, you know. Your question was, so what happens? I think your mom and the listeners need to know. Right. The directors do not write the commercial scripts. And we don't get residuals. 
we get paid for one shoot day, you know, per shoot day. And and I do comedy where they want you to bang out two or three comedy commercials in one day. But if you do a pharmaceutical ad with that litany of uh, side effects, you may get four or five days to do one commercial. So I picked the wrong. Oh, genre. Yeah. But you're right. Okay, they don't. They do not write the script. Is usually an ad agency involved. It's an ad agency. Pat, it's so weird. Sometimes you get one picture. Sometimes you get a paragraph. Sometimes you get a fully storyboarded three pages of drawings for thirty seconds, and then you have to be the truth teller and go, "This is like ninety seconds. What are we going to do?" So I get a script in some form or another. My favorite is when it's one picture and some dialogue because then you you know i can add my layer to it and as i tell the filmmakers i'm lucky enough to to help out i say you want to bend it you know don't break it because they've vetted this commercial they the ad agency went to pepno and they said pepto people this is what we're going to do so you come in saying they should be on a horse they're not going to go for the horse right so I have a very specific process where even in the age of PDFs over the phone and chat, I print the script before I ever read it. And I take a pen, I usually use a uniball, fine point, black ink, and I creatively vomit on the script the first time I read it in real time, real time creativity. It's a process that I need as a person who I live creatively without rules. The only rule is the 30 seconds and don't break it. So now I, I've assigned myself a discipline, and I can start drawing pictures, sketches, alternate dialogue, funnier joke here. Can they pay for Grandma to react to the person doing the funny thing with the car polish? Because I'm afraid if I look at it on my phone, one, I'm offending my wife or back, you know, when my kids were little, like, Dad, you're on your phone working and we're trying to play Frisbee. So that's one reason. And the other reason is I don't want the ideas to come in so fast while I'm reading this one piece of paper that I'm going to forget them. Right? So I got to have the pen and the paper and I'm da 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 da. And then I take a breath and I go back. Let me read it again. Okay, that won't work. They've already thought of the beaver. I'm, we're not going to have a beaver. Where are we going to get a trained beaver? So that's how you get the job. Then you go on a what is now a Zoom and you pitch the agency. You tell them your take on their idea. I, I liken it to being a midwife. They got pregnant. The agency and the client got pregnant. I'm going to deliver that baby. I'm going to swaddle it, clean up the placenta. I may let them cut the, the cord. And I'm going to hand it to an editor who's like a nanny or a wet nurse. That is a pretty good analogy. But it is true that you end up walking away and not raising the baby at that point that it's completed and that they're marketing it and they're set out. So you are there really in just a, a window of very important time to oversee capturing the event with as many options as you can. So your editor can, sometimes they come back and they tell the story and you go, you know what? It's good, but it's a few seconds too long. Or what are we going to do to foreshorten this? Or who are we going to look at during that reaction shot so we can see that they like the product? Or whatever storytelling tricks that you're using there. 
it's quite a masterful skill to tell stories in that short of length and now even shorter than 30 seconds six six seconds some of them yeah six seconds 15 seconds and they want not just a moment they want a connection right they want people to feel something so that they want to buy it what is it is it the empathy towards the person holding the baby whatever it is it's supposed to mean oh the product makes me feel that or whatever it is humor they, we laugh. I mean, some of these, and I maybe you've done some of these Geico commercials or whatever. When a commercial begins to create a brand where we look forward to their commercial, then the product is constantly like, now we're saying, I love those Geico commercials. And so many times they make a mistake, which is they don't have you remember the product. To me, that's the biggest waste of Super Bowl money in the world is some hilarious thing or some romantic thing. And you go, I have no idea what's happening there. Oh, there were some great ones where the guy's looking at a car, but at the beginning, you think he's looking at a five-foot piece of sushi. Uh And then they cut, and it's a, you know, a Datsun or something. A woman is looking at giant French fries in the driveway, but it's really hockey sticks. And it's when all you can French fry about is hockey. So they mix the words up. And it's for either Grubhub or Uber Eats or, or DoorDash. And that's your point. I love the commercial. I love the creative for the commercial. But I can't remember who it's for. Right. You could slap any logo on the end. Geico, that's my mission for 2023 because I've never done a Geico commercial. I think they're genius. And the other one I look forward to is Dr. Rick, the guy who says don't turn into your parents for progressive and that started off as a one-off commercial, and it's turned into, like, its fourth year of just funny stuff. You said on that first job that you did, the first commercials that you did, that you could run the event. You could put on the event. And I think that is key to any creative endeavor. Are you the leader because you can, you can hire great people and surround yourself, right? The DPs, the costume designers, sets, you know, even like actors. That's the, for me, one of the most fun parts. I get nervous, and then we cast great people, and I know it's going to be great. But that's, that comes down to not only running the event, but you also set the tone. And I think that the tone that you create on set reflects the tone of the movie if you're making a film it's a horror movie doesn't mean everybody's scary on set jumping around corners and stuff but you're setting the tone so that that somehow that magic dust sprinkles into the film or the commercial or the play or the song one of the things that i took really seriously on one of my very early ones was budgeting my time because when you say you're doing it in a day or you're doing multiple ones in a day. I was flown down to North Carolina and they had a football coach for a USAA spot and they had multiple spots. So we had this time frame. He had a hard out at five o'clock. I'm literally looking at these spots saying, okay, everyone, if we don't turn the corner here every 15 minutes, and I mean, stop me at 15 minutes. If I don't get this set up, we're moving on, which put some pressure on me. But I was running on a time budget where I go, as long as I do that, I'll get there. So that morning I pull in 
And they've already got the coach in the backyard on a patio shooting a sports interview. And I'm like, wait a minute, the talent's doing something else right now? I can't even talk to the guy right up to the moment? And they go, oh, yeah. And at lunch, he's shooting a print ad on the front driveway with a car. I'm like, are you flipping kidding me? So I go, all right, everyone, give me 15 minutes with the time budget because I'm not having lunch and you guys are changing setups. And none of you, by the way, I don't know what they told you. You're not working on that commercial in the front yard. I need my team here. And it really, I lived and died by the stopwatch and it really paid off. But that was a whole different skill set than keep it funny and keep it moving. The other thing that you know well, because you come from humor, is that you can get a lot out of people if they trust you. Establishing a trust where you can go up and say something to an actor or you can suggest something and everyone doesn't think you're a lunatic when you just go, you know what, just dump the leaves right now. They do what you say and sometimes you're just trying whatever you're trying. It's a a very important thing to establish that trust with each actor, with each crew person. You set some rules. You know, you don't want people chit-chatting behind you and you don't want people on a headset ruining that magic moment by doing their job too loudly. So there's a, there's a lot of details. When I'm lucky enough to work with the regular crew that are my friends, I will come up and go, hey guys, we're on time. We have a little, we're actually ahead. I am wearing my collaboration hat. Does anybody have some good ideas? Because I'm open to ideas. And they all laugh like, really? Is, that the, is it on tight? What if we did this? What if we did that? And th- these are like grips, electricians, PAs, camera people that are like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if he did this? And now they're contributing. And then after lunch, we're a little behind, and I'll walk up and go, I don't know if you can see or not, but I'm not, not wearing the collaboration hat. I am wearing the benevolent dictator hat. Right. So I will not move until the camera is exactly where my two fingers is. The old salty guys are like, they'll walk by and go, I like dictator mode. Like, they just want to be told, like, let's get it done, right? But it's it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to say, we got to really go now. And I'll tell a- agency people that I've never worked with before, I'm usually, I'm usually an hour late going into lunch, religiously. And then after lunch, we'll make it up and we'll finish on time. Because we're doing this for profit, the production company doesn't want you to go over time. Over t- 15 minutes could be $10,000. I just say, what time do we call rap? Well, the trucks and the guy go, no, I don't care about any of that. Just tell me, what time does Jordan have to say that's a rap? And then I'm, I'm not going to help clean up. You figure all that out. And they go, 5.15. I was like, okay. And 5.13, Pat, I'm holding up a watch going, that's a wrap. I also have come up with a, you know, these are just my views that are very narrow but correct. I like that. That's a very important last little caveat. I schedule the funny before lunch because you you got that blood, you know, after lunch in your belly digesting and it's just, it's just like 4.8% less funny. So if I get the funny before lunch and it takes an extra 20 minutes in this shot and 20 minutes in that shot, then after lunch, it's just boom, boom, boom. You're clicking off little cutaway pieces i i I know i'm getting deep in the weeds no no but i think the listener who listens to this podcast is usually an independent creative person who is learning something in what we consider our listening library Uh, i mean i think might riddle you with some speed round questions but 
working with non-actors versus actors, right? So when you have professional comics and people that you've had in campaigns before, you have a shorthand. But when you have a regular Joe at the grocery store, how do you communicate with non-actors to keep them relaxed and seeming normal? Wow, that's a great question. My wife works is a director, filmmaker, who works a lot interviewing real people, and she'll meet them beforehand, now do a Zoom. She has a whole dossier in the living room, and by the time she gets there, they're comfortable. It's not comedy. It's like heartfelt stuff. And my approach when I've worked with, like in Texas, it was Reliant Energy, and we interviewed real people. And I just straight up give them line readings. I just say say it exactly like this, just direct and to the point. And and there's a trick that people use called 50-50 where you roll the camera in sound, but you don't call action. And I do that with kids and real people. And I'll go, hey, um, everybody be quiet. You know, the younger people on the crew don't know the term anymore. So inevitably there's a PA with a walkie-talkie like – walking through the shot and you have to go hey and which again it falls on the director to set the tone and say like if you're scouting or at the beginning of the day we usually have a meeting the safety meeting i'll go hey we're working with real people today i'm going to be calling 50 50 and jeremy our ad is going to call 50 50 that means we're actually rolling so don't say we're rolling because it freaks the real people out so if you go, hey, let's 50-50, uh, 50-50, and it kind of buzzes around the set, camera's rolling, sound guy nods, and now you're rolling. So I'll say to the real person, hey, before we roll, let's do a couple of practice takes. I want you to do it just exactly like I'm doing it. Just stare at me, stare at me right here and say, you know, that's not my car. And they'll say, that's not my car. No, no, just watch. That's not my car. And I'll point at them and they'll say it. Like it's, it's very prescriptive. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But that's important. Is there a term for when you say cut, but you keep rolling? The reason I say it is I've used that a few times, and I had to use it when I put my parents in a Baker's Supermarket commercial with me. And they were, they if it was rolling, they could not act normal. And so they would hear action, and they would freeze up, and they would get clunky, and then it would say cut, and they would relax. So I just went whispering around, and I said, listen, I'm going to cut and you just roll and roll and roll. Just do not listen to me. And I'm going to talk to them. Off, you know. So I was doing it when they thought it was over, right, on the other end. Right. That's a great one. We need a word for that. We got it. And clap. I love clapping when the actors are great. If it's a new crew, I'll just say, when the director claps, everybody claps, breathing enthusiasm throughout the set. Everybody reluctantly starts clapping. And, and then after a while, they start clapping. It just breeds fun. But I got to think of this word. Um, and the reason I say, here's what's funny. It was a very simple scene. And they had a made-up word called quavis. And quavis stood for quality, variety, and service at this grocery store, right? Maybe that's the word. Quavis. That's not a bad word. Nobody else uses it now. But So I thought it would be a funny spot to have a Scrabble board where I played the letters for quavis. And my dad's like, quavis, I'm looking that up. All he had to say was, I'm looking that up. And he said it so many different ways. I'm looking that up. I'm looking at it. And I kept going, say it like it's a bad Scrabble word. And he couldn't do it until we weren't rolling. 
And so we had to do the fake role. And, and by the way, my dad was a, a ham and he was in the church choir and he was a very gregarious guy. But the idea of being on camera freaked him out. And my mom was unbelievably natural and saying things she didn't care at all. Like she was, I would call and I'd say, she goes, well, what should we wear? And I go, just pick clothes out of your closet. Well, maybe I'll talk to my people. I go, mom, you don't have any people. <laughs> I mean, it's so sweet. And then you're on set and you're saying to everybody and they go, wow, they really look like uh, they could be your parents. I go, those are my parents. That's why they're struggling with me to do this material. Let me talk about something besides non-actors. Let's talk about working with the storyboard. Because I did read in your book, Commercial Directing Voodoo, first of all, let me just give it a big plug. It's an easily accessible book, and I probably had said this to you along the way. It looks like a children's book, and that's not an insult. <laughs> you did say that. No, you, you, you wrote me. It's like a children's book. I know, but you illustrated it, and there's two or three sentences on a page. You know, it looks like a Dick and Jane book, but it's Dick and Jane direct giant brands commercials that you could read in i would say in 90 minutes you could read and absorb it but it's almost too much i would personally suggest put it on the back of your toilet and read five pages every sitting but many have kept it on the back of the toilet believe it or yeah not. but but here's why it's so great every page has something and even though the drawings are crude they are very much communicating an idea which is what you do if you're trying to communicate to a storyboard. Here's somebody in the foreground, here's somebody in the background, here comes the swinging ball, and that's all you have to do. You don't have to do any more than that to communicate your idea, which then gets translated to this high production, slick, high quality, special effect, practical thing that's gonna happen. And I think that I'm saying that for the listener to say, don't say, I can't draw, oh, I'm bad with names. Don't create a series of negative setbacks when all you have to do is be able to communicate your ideas. And the book illustrates that really beautifully. They're stick figures for sure. Oh, one person said to me, did your child draw those? Yeah, but I don't. I think it's great. And also, I do say there's a, a, a great contradiction between a couple of pages. And on one page, it says, the headline is, always tell the truth. And on the opposing page, it says, lie about your budget. Literally, the next thing you tell them is to lie about your budget. So why should they lie about their budget? Well, I don't know about lie, but certainly omit the truth. Because if, if you and I are trying to advance our careers, so we go out, if I go make a Geico spot with my own money, right, I'm going to get friends and favors and family and everybody. So it's not fair to say, oh, I made it for $10,000 on my own when really that would cost you know $150,000 to get a SAG actors and a big set and a whale and all this stuff. So it's 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 just not appropriate to tell the budget and it's just it should be based on how it looks. No, I agree with you and I, here's the thing. I made a lot of spec things where I did it on a shoestring. I would say I made a comedy thing for $500 and people go, how in the world did you pull this off? And how did you get Larry Miller in this spot? And how did that happen? And I made a fake movie trailer for very, very little. And it was with Jerry Seinfeld material. And it was a great thing to make a spec movie trailer out of. I wouldn't want anybody to know how little I spent on it. Well, that's the thing. It's going to hurt you for people to know. And they might look at, like I always tell people if you're going to put your spec commercial which 
if you don't, listeners don't know, that means you just made it speculatively and you paid for it. And you don't need permission. You don't need the brand to give you permission for it. In fact, if you make a spec spot and someone says, what happens if they call me and give me a cease and desist? I say, well, come on my podcast. We'll talk about it because I want to get you as much press as possible. Don't put it on Vimeo or YouTube or Facebook or whatever and call it my Nike spec commercial. Because now before I've clicked play, I'm going, well, this can't be that good. Right? There's just a prejudice against the fact that it's not real. So why tell everyone it has to play against the Gatorade spot and anything else? Well, you can also put it on your reel in a place that's protected by password. It doesn't have to be public facing, as, yeah. is what I always tell people. Yeah, when they want to see it, then you can show them how to get to it. But you don't necessarily need it out there causing other damage for you. But you also said in the book that you work from the boards, that you just take the storyboard in your hip pocket versus a lot of other material. I know that you're expanding the idea within that, but that becomes your Bible for the day's work, right? It's so funny, Pat. I, I started by just kind of winging it, and I maybe would do a shot list for the crew, and then someone said, you know, the agency wants you to storyboard it, which a lot of times that's required that you storyboard it. So my crude childlike stick figures usually get redrawn by a professional. Like I've been working with the same storyboard artist who's a filmmaker in his own right for like, I don't know, 12, 15 years now. And we can talk like he can draw a 50 millimeter lens or he'll go, what do you think is this like on a 24 millimeter lens down in the corner? He can draw the perspective, whereas I'm just... 2D, there it is. But with all the AI that's been rearing its head here, and, and I love the AI. I think it's fun and crazy and, and is an accelerant for creative people. I spent my Christmas break like learning the chatbot, whatever it's called, and you know the images, and I can see how that's... It doesn't have whimsy or humor. It's predicting based on things it's learned but it doesn't have that twist that you and I have. AI and wit aren't like synonymous. Yeah, if anything, it's just gonna get words on the page quicker, but you're gonna to have to read it, twist it, polish it, rub it. I go to work, I don't use an iPad or anything like that. I just, I've got in my mind a 30 second commercial I like to draw nine shots because it fits on one page in mm -hmm. a three by three. Now I know we're going to get a close up, Pat. We're going to get a close up, of your mom. We're you know we'll draw the, those close ups or the two shot, and we know we're going to get the close ups. We'll draw the cutaway of the Scrabble board, but some of the other things we don't need to draw. Like I know these nine shots are it. It's sort of a way to trick myself because I'll tell the crew we need to pick up some more shots when we're doing this, but I feel like I'm over-delivering. So I want to under-promise and mm -hmm. over-deliver for the edit room. I like that. Yeah, I do. And, you know, it's funny. You do have to, in pre-production, and that covers a lot of territory, but in things like scouting the location, you can solve a lot of problems by determining what order to go through the yard or the house and how to set up 
mean, all of that is a part of a heist, essentially. You've got to pull this off in a certain amount of time, and then you've got to get out of that person's house clean. And I know that if you don't do that, you just can't pull it off. You know, it's funny, Pat. I, after doing this years and doing a couple of movies, I demand that we do not start with the wide shot. Because the wide shot rarely makes a comedy commercial. And if it does, it's like a second and a half. Traditional filmmaking, if you're making a movie, you light for the big wide shot, and then you move in closer, then you get a close-up and then close-up. You, and you, you, it's, it's methodical, and it makes sense to do wide, two-shot, coverage, coverage, whatever you're going to do. And the assistant directors and the DPs and everybody, they want to do You sure you don't want to do it? You don't want to bang out the wide shot. Well, there's another reason. You've got a copywriter and an art director from an agency and a client there, and they've worked on this spot for, let's say, five months before they hired you to be this midwife. And your first shot up, you're going to go, hey, we only need one or two takes. He didn't say kumquat right. I'm in a position to go, well, that's in the middle of the commercial. We're never going to cut to the wide shot in the middle of the commercial. I just want the actors to get the rhythm going. So I don't want this negativity and combative thing. I want to respect that they want to see their whole scene. So I'll start with like a two-shot of the heroes or a close-up of the hero. And that's why I'm an hour late going into lunch because – you let's do seven takes. Hey, you want to do? You want to try an alt? Let's try the alt here. Now, at the end of the day, when we do the wide shot, now everybody's like, "Oh yeah, we just need a second of this." They're like, "Yeah, yeah, no, the good stuff is in that close up you did it before lunch." A critical moment is deciding how to start successfully in the day, how to give everybody a sense that you really got the lion's share of the hero shot of the product or a big moment in the humor, as you say. It's kind of glorious to get that under your belt. If you're doing a feature film, it's kind of a different story. Totally different game. Totally different game. Now, you also talk about directing actors using verbs. Action verbs, yeah. So give me a little insight to that. Why do you use verbs? Well, I, I think I read it in a book on how to direct actors. Like, I can't claim that as an original. And then I start Googling, and there are colleges that have printed, like, hundreds of action verbs. But I am proud to say that I once told a woman standing at the kitchen sink to flirt with the detergent. And the way she held up that detergent and looked at that bottle of Dawn and gave it, like, a little, hmm. It's like there's an old Hitchcock clip where he... He shows himself watching a woman on the beach. And, and depending upon how he edits the sequence, you have a different emotion or reaction. But somehow flirt with the detergent got her to give a certain interpretation, a look that worked within the spot. Right. It's that come hither tide. <laughs> Distrust your husband was one. That was Avery Labels. Distrust your husband. And the woman, she was such a great actor, she just looked with her eyes over at the husband, and it was funny. Yeah, I think in Twyla Tharp's book, she very much talks about give people verbs to think about dances. That opens up a whole series of emotions that you have to be active on. You have to do something. Yeah, and I, I want to say Ron Howard's masterclass, which is 
excellent. You're watching him direct people. I mean, there's so many great resources for any creative endeavor now. Like, I would say gobble them all up. We didn't have that. We were, like, creating somewhat in a void. Yeah, it is funny to me. But I really got Laserdiscs because they always had a thing at the end where you could push a button and hear the directors and editors and people talking about the footage. And it was amazing. You know, it's not something you could watch with your family, but you could go, this is one of my favorite movies. What, what made them think of this? Why are they shooting dirty on that door frame? And I can't even see half the character. Oh, I'm feeling like a voyeur. It's not clean. And now I feel like I'm spying on that. Once you start to hear the reason behind things, and, and I mean, that's partly why on this show we talk about people's creative process is there's a big aha in that. And I know that your podcast is called Respect the Process, and that's all about filmmaking and storytelling. And process seems to be everything nowadays, doesn't it? Yes. Like, I work alone for the majority of my life, my professional life. Until I'm on set or in prep, I'm pitching to get jobs. I'm thinking of reels to put together. Do I need to shoot something to spice up my reel and all that? So I've developed processes that work for me to hopefully jumpstart. I have a camera and a boom mic in my office set up. I shot a little test and I'm trying to make a thing for TikTok, which I was kicking and screaming, Pat. It's just another thing I got to deal with. But I use that mind power, say it's another outlet. Creativity, people are doing funny things on there. Maybe you can do it. When Vine came along, I was like, six seconds, that's ridiculous. And then a guy like Zach King, I think is his name, is doing these insane things in six seconds where he's running against the wall and the clothes are falling to the ground. I was like, this guy has mastered it. It opened my mind up. I'm so glad you brought him up. And I implore your listeners to follow him now on TikTok or Instagram. So I got a brief in 2015 or 16 to do a Toyota campaign. Vine was hot and they were like Zach King. So when you talk about discipline and respecting the process, I had done early jump cut thing. I mean, Zach King, they're essentially jump cuts with iMac software that he makes slick. He literally is the king. He's great. You know what? They're also stories and something's happening. You know, it's not just a special effect. Usually there's an additional beginning, middle, and end to it where you go, oh, wait, oh, he just fooled me again. He crams at least two, usually three tricks into 10, 15 seconds. What I thought was magical from the agency with Toyota is they devised a trick like Zach King, but they wrote it around a feature like heated seats or towing ability. One of them was the truck had a electrical outlet in the back of the bed of the pickup truck. So each bit was like a Zach King trick written around the, what do you do when you want to do this? Pick guy picks up the car, juggles the car, puts it in the driveway far, far away, you know, has great handling. And it was about the handling of the car. Now here's a, a tangent that I don't know enough about, but each commercial script was written to be fed to a customer who had visited like toyota.com and they got fed that commercial. So Pat Hazel was checking out the Bose speaker stereo system 
you got one where the speakers jump cut and a puppy dog appears. Yeah, yeah, that's part of their tracking our interest and clicking what we liked. Yeah. Yeah, I have nothing to do with that. I was just amazed that they were able to craft a Zach King-like thing around a feature of a car. So I'm hired. I have to pitch on this. And this is where a little bit of magic comes into play. So I know I have to do these force perspective, like Zach King will pick up the Eiffel Tower, but it's really a miniature that he's matched to the one in the background in Paris. And I was writing a treatment and I went, I have to shoot something. I have to show that I can shoot and edit this kind of commercial. It's not about, I can write it. I got to show it. So I grabbed a video camera. I tossed my sweatshirt onto the couch, added camera shake. I cloned myself. I appeared in the background. I talked to myself like it was, it was Zach King. Yeah, but before Instagram is now doing all these things. Yes. P.S. Everything we're talking about is an app. And they're not as slick as he, he did it. They're not as slick as what I, what I was doing. So I had an aha moment. Like, well, how do I have the guy pick up the car and put it back in the drive? A little car and it's forced perspective. You know what? In my garage, there's a set of lockers. And in the top locker is a miniature shopping cart from a press junket in 1996. And I think there's a giant pencil in there that the kids had. So I stop everything I'm writing. I go home. I claw my way through the garage. I find the shopping cart and the giant pencil. And like, what was it that reminded me 20 some years ago I had these, or 30 years ago, right? Not very good at math. And I went to the Ralph's supermarket and I lined up the pretty realistic miniature shopping cart to look like it was with the ones in the faraway background. And I started, for, and there was a big pencil in it. So it looks like a giant pencil in a regular shopping cart. Uh -huh. And I run up to the camera and I pick it up and it was all in camera. Come back to my office, edit it, and it wasn't quite right. I was a little off. So I schlepped my stuff back to the supermarket and shot it a second time. And I got the gig. And we did four rounds over the next three years. I mean, it turned into a few hundred thousand dollars worth of commercial directing. Are those on your website or in, on YouTube now or something else? I have them on a Vimeo, yeah. What is it that enters the brain, even the memory, to go... Wait a minute. First of all, get off your ass and shoot something. Two, I'm going to give you a gift, says the universe. Something you've never done anything with, and it's in your garage. You know, there was a guy on YouTube named Raj somewhere in India who made, you know, I'm going to teach you how to do the Zach King trick, and he broke down Zach King tricks. I wrote the guy like, Raj, I love you. Wow. Well, listen, this is the Quavis shot, as we say. Number one, I want to be sure to get some things out there because in addition to the commercial director's boot camp that you do on occasion and the great book, uh, Commercial Directing Voodoo, you have retreats that go on. Like People can find all that. What is your website where they can kind of dance through all of those options? Well, Pat, that would be commercialdirectingfilmschool.com. Okay. 
I want to be sure that if people have an inkling for that or are curious about it, it is going to help you be a better storyteller and learn an awful lot about things that you cannot learn in school. I know that you have memos that go out and all kinds of things like that. So I, I applaud you for that, the spirit of your legacy to help teach, because really the more better commercial directors we have, the more better commercials we're going to have and the better the storytelling is going to be overall. Right. You said it early on, rising tides lift all ships. I mean, if there's a commercial that I was trying to get in on and a young guy that I signed to my company over 10, 12 years ago, he's bidding on it and I'm not. And I don't know what kind of stoicism I'm on, but I'm super happy. Like, I am overjoyed. I don't care. I mean, did I want the job? Yes. But I'm so happy when you talk about legacy to see people carrying on or I love when filmmakers will send me their spot and say, hey, I just did this or I just signed with a production company and the joy in that. Like, I, And I don't know if it's just getting older. Like, I wish I knew how great it felt to help people when I was younger and more egotistical, but I didn't. And here I am. So I'm very happy. I appreciate you investing the time and sharing the knowledge. It's a joy really to have you in our now forever listening library. And mostly it allows people to now look Jordan Brady up and 1300 commercials. We haven't touched any number of things, the importance of who you cast and using practical versus digital effects. And there's so much to learn in this genre, um, but I think it's not frivolous. I think people are much more visual in their learning and their website, and really all of that is what commercial directing is, even if you're doing it yourself in your web design or animation. Ultimately, you gotta learn to tell a fast story and make a very important point. Drive them to go to your website or do whatever. Well, Jordan, thank you again for coming into my world of podcasting. We'll be listening to your Respect the Process podcast and i wish you continued success to you and your directing wife and your directing son and your everybody else that's working in your creative environment there oh thank you pat this has been a true treat and i want to thank you from the bottom of my heart which would be the left ventricle thanks for listening take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage in circle.